0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist, and I'm joined by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Longform.org. Hey,
1: hey. Hey, about to go have a little uh, happy hour over here. You're gonna and make this quick.
0: Make this quick so we can get to the bar. Aaron, who did we talk to this
1: week? Uh, we talked to uh, Jonah Weiner, uh, who is a writer for Rolling Stone, Slate, uh, New Yorker, lots of places. Uh, I, I don't know how to really intro these things. It was interesting. Yeah, you guys both seemed you came out of that uh, conversation real happy. Yeah, I think we're friends now. Yeah, yeah, it's a good time. I think, I think we've. Uh, this isn't about making
0: friends; it's about asking the hard questions.
1: <laughs> That's dead wrong. It is about friends, and I'd like to
0: uh, quickly mention our friends at Tiny Letter, tinyletter dot com. It's a simple, powerful way to send email newsletters. Thank you for your sponsorship.
1: And uh, unofficially, this podcast also sponsored by uh, Jameson.
0: Yeah, thank thanks, Jameson. But uh, for real, Tiny Letter.
1: No, but actually Tiny Letter. Tiny Letter in a giving us money sense is the the sponsor. And also in delivering the uh, great newsletter sets. They are good at that also. Uh, Enjoy. I am here with Jonah Weiner. Uh, Jonah Weiner of Slate, of Rolling Stone, of New Yorker, of uh, many, many places. Welcome, Jonah. Thanks so much. As you you've written for some pretty different bylines, do you do you consciously feel like you have the Jonah Weiner voice, or is it the Jonah Weiner Blender voice, the Jonah Weiner Rolling Stone voice? How, how much how much are you considering where where you're being published?
0: I don't know. There's something um, that I'm able to do when I write for a place, uh, which is probably just kind of like read a piece that they've written that, that they've run recently and kind of internalize that voice and just sort of have those syntaxes in my head so if there's a jonah weiner style i couldn't tell you what it is yet <laughs> i might be getting closer to it i don't know because i mean i've been writing now for you know 10 years so i so i, I sort of very slowly i feel very glacially i've sort of started to feel more confident in what i might intuit is to be my voice but mm-hmm. Yeah. But no, otherwise, I I, I sort of feel like I'm I'm, I'm basically I'm not giving myself credit. I feel like I'm a good mimic in a way, but that I'm sort of almost that there's a hackiness in that, that I'm always trying to push past.
1: Well, the the idea of mimicry is something that's come up in a lot of these conversations we've had. And one thing that I sort of glom onto is that, I mean, I think a lot of people could mimic a 200 word capsule review. Um, You're now doing much, much longer features have you ever gotten to a point where you were in over your head as a mimic or you were, you had bitten off something that couldn't simply be mimicked?
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the mimic is sort of a, a, is almost a, is never that conscious. It's it's almost an autopilot thing, which is good. It's not, it's not kind of like weighing down on my head. It's, it's more like I said, like, uh, you know, just whatever it would be, just go read something that this publication has done recently. And sort of, then when I sit down at my empty Microsoft word document, uh, there's something just sort of uh, almost reflective that happens uh, in terms of being in under, uh, uh, over my head. Um, the, the probably the you know, the, the first thing that I did for The Times magazine, um, it was an assignment that I got uh, w- before Hugo Lingren was the editor in chief. It was when uh, it was still a Marzarati and it was a profile of this weird performance artist guy called Brock Enright. Um, and I pitched that uh, it's this guy who staged the, he has this company you ever see David Fincher's The Game the Michael yes. Douglas movie yep. so it's like, it's, it's like the, the the like Bushwick art school graduate like uh, version of that company that this guy runs where he'll stage adventures for people I don't know if he still does it uh, but I heard about this from a friend of mine who had worked with Enright and I pitched the story and uh, the reporting of it took a fairly long time because I needed Enright to like get his shit, enough, uh, shit together enough so that he could put on an adventure that I, for a client that I could watch. And there was one that I sort of watched from the start, but then it had stops and starts to it. And it was so the reporting happened for a long time. Then I think I filed it. And soon afterwards, uh, there was this uh, editor-in-chief change over there. And so the piece sort of sat on the runway for a while. And I think when I finally got notes on it, I had to do a bottom-up rewrite. And it's because the reporting had lasted so long and I think I had just stressed out so much about this being my first Times Magazine assignment that I, you know, I just, I guess I just choked or something, but I just sort of had made obvious mistakes. Like, uh, I'm, it's, it's far enough back now that I don't remember it perfectly, but, but Enright was this very kind of fascinating, nutty character. And, yeah. I, I, you know, he wouldn't dispute that characterization. I mean, it's sure. Sort of like, self-consciously nutty but he was almost absent from the piece uh and if that's even like imaginable like that's the weird job i'd done where i tried to make it like super nuts and bolts about the adventures and sort of had removed this fascinating character from it Hmm. um so that's not a that's not uh an answer to the question about sort of feeling over my head specifically about uh, along the lines of like being a failed mimic or something but that was the last time that i remember really just sort of panicking when i got a really great really thorough line edit from my editor and it was every paragraph needed to go and I contemplated quitting yeah Uh, I was like this this, that's fine I can just quit this doesn't need to be my profession I can go just I can just move to Montana you know uh live on a ranch and 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 I was like you know crazy thoughts that I was having because that's the last time that I remember looking at the you know the the blank page of the word document and sort of being paralyzed by the thought that one sentence had to come after another, just yeah. like you know it's like staring at a word for so long you stop recognizing it like I had somehow just I don't know gone like been staring or freaking uh, staring at or freaking out about this piece so much that I just sort of stopped you know I, I didn't know how to write for a little stretch there
1: So in the way that you just described the the problems with this story, uh, it sounds like you had profiled the game, not uh, the game maker. Right. Uh, on a certain level, what do you what do you do what do you do at that point when you realize you've um, misaimed a little bit and you need to redirect? Um, did you go back to report more on the story?
0: No, I mean I, I had the reporting there, and there was just like all this great stuff that I just hadn't used, like for whatever reason, because you I don't know, like some part of your brain like flicks off because you're freaking out or whatever it is. Um, uh, but the other thing that I found very useful with Enright and that I've found useful. Uh, on smaller pieces is really actually to delete everything that I've written and go at it fresh and just re envision it again. This is going to be my new lead now, and these and this is that's that's really the best way to do it because if there are these vestigial sentences and the vestigial kind of like. Sequences of paragraphs that are in the draft. I'm sure a lot of writers feel this way for me I'm that's going to just like snap me back into where my
1: head was at in an unproductive way Do you do that one time during the writing process or multiple times that clean just if
0: I really hit if I really feel like I've hit a wall Which thankfully, you know knocking the nearest wood surface doesn't happen a lot to me. Yeah Um, But that's often I'll find that that is just this great cure-all just delete it all go for a walk, you know, whatever it is, and then sit down and start writing an entirely different feature about the exact same subject.
1: Interesting. The The way that you describe this Enright piece, it sounds to me a little bit like it was uh, a bit of a trial run for a later piece you did in uh, New York Times magazine. Um, came out last year, I believe, uh, about a video game called Dwarf Fortress. It's more a profile of the man who makes his game than the game itself. Um, He's living in what would generously be called a shitty apartment um, and is in some ways living a sort of uh, frozen, semi-adolescent dream of a life um, as he obsessively pours his life into this game. Um, I I sort of struck when I read it by the high degree of difficulty in, in profiling someone like this because... Um, not only is this a uh, inward-looking person who has almost no contact, it seems, with the outside world, outside of the, the game and, and the fans of the game, but additionally, this game, pretty obscure cult game, um, do you, do you seek that out in stories? You, I mean, I was thinking, like, when I was reading that profile, I was like, well, I know what Minecraft is. That's like that's my closest reference in there. Why why profile um, the creator of Dwarf Fortress rather than the creator of Minecraft?
0: Yeah, and and the Minecraft guy is an, av- an avowed fan of Dwarf Fortress and has yeah. side of the game as as inspiration. Um, well, uh, there's I'm sure there's a fascinating profile to be written of the Minecraft guy. In fact, I think that uh, Chad Matlin did a Maybe like a Bloomberg Business Week story about him or something. It kind
1: of rings a bell, yeah. Uh,
0: but that—that's uh, a story waiting to be written. So it's not about not doing that. But with uh, with Adams, um, I have a, a good friend of mine uh, plays the game, uh, mm. and he's not super into it, but he would played it enough to sort of, uh, and and he's got just sort of you know a, a, a good taste for just sort of incredibly insane things that you know that 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 uh, that I might want to hear about. So he said, you know. Uh, one day, I think he was just talking with another buddy of mine who's, all, who's a video gamer. I don't play video games uh, at all, but these two guys were talking about Dwarf Fortress, and it just sounded so insane to me that I sort of did a little poking around online. Um, oh, you know what it was? There was a, a There was a boing boing post. That's what they were talking about. That someone who plays Dwarf Fortress had actually built a functioning computer within Dwarf Fortress. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like using like logs and running water and like levers and all this had built a machine that could do like very rudimentary computation within this video game. And that was the that's what they were talking about. So I was like, well, there's a story right there. On some level even if it's just that boing boing post but that's Mm -hmm. just interesting and what i found out about adams was that he uh was a uh, stanford phd in mathematics he had uh, and and there were some interviews with him on uh, like gaming websites which is where i learned this stuff uh he had uh gotten his degree from stanford uh you know he might say that he wasn't brilliant but you know as far as as far as I'm concerned, brilliant mathematician guy, he's a couple years into a postdoc, uh, and he quits to start the video game. And at that point, when you've got someone doing that, the, the sort of like familiar contours of a magazine story sort of come into shape, uh, come mm-hmm. into uh, view, right? Uh, the guy who was on this one track and he was doing so well, and then he gave it all up for this crazy gamble. You know, and sort of like once you've got that little handle, uh, you know, as a writer, you can start seeing the way that a profile would take shape.
1: I'm sort of I'm sort of um struck by the general movie idea that um you never want a protagonist that people can't relate to. And in this story and in a number of your stories, uh, you're you're able to um profile people who who are not instantly terribly relatable like um Tarn. Well, how I guess this is a two-part question. How do you uh take something a game like this that's very, very obscure and very difficult to play. And how do you take a character like this who is not a extrovert, is not a person who's living a life that's easy to frame within normal society, and how do you make them relatable? How do you connect that with the New York Times audience?
0: Well, if it's not a cop-out, I think that maybe the the first idea that pops into my head is that I never found, and and maybe this sounds crazy, but I never found Tarn actually hard to relate to. all, I don't have his command of mathematics. I'm not a gamer, so I'm not relating with him along those lines. But in terms of kind of the broad strokes of a, you know, very smart, passionate person devoting their lives to this, you know, insane but beautiful project, right? Sort of that's that's my access point. Um, and so, I, I yeah, I guess this, this isn't to cop out. If that's my access point onto him, then it's very easy for me to imagine a New York Times magazine readership sort of... Uh being able to kind of you know categorize him or you know process him in a similar way Um and and yeah you can't get lost in the under the hood mechanics you need a little bit of that Uh, And that was one of the really one of the tricky things uh with this piece Uh and and it's a while now that I wrote it so I'm, I'm not remembering exactly but But I do recall that there was this juggling act between kind of uh You know, adequately reporting on the complexity of this game and and exactly the kind of crazy mathematical and programming stuff that Tarn was pulling off. Sufficiently to kind of ground the piece and show that it's interesting without going so far into that that it becomes a piece for you know I don't know an online game journal right uh, where people are you know have much higher tolerance for that level of detail yeah well you have
1: that thing where like um, I can't remember exactly what the two things are but like the Wikipedia page for Gears of War is longer than the Wikipedia page for Iraq War <laughs> um, and that that certain top in gaming particularly some of these games have taken on a complexity level that you literally can't imagine um, if you're not someone who's heavily invested in them. Um, But I think that that what you just said about that actually overlaps slightly with um, the newest piece that you have out um, with The New Yorker, which came out a couple weeks ago, which is also about someone who has a very regimented process um, to create a somewhat obscure form of art. I mean, something that he's found... Success with in selling in galleries, but is in many ways a very bizarre personal obsession um, more than a mainstream art expression. Um, tell tell me a little, the the stories about Trevor Paglin. What's what's the story called?
0: Uh, prying eyes.
1: Prying eyes. The stories about Trevor Paglin. Who I'm pronouncing that right? right? Yeah. Who is a uh, photographer of. Uh, uh, dark spaces—is that the term?
0: Uh, well, uh, the term he uses is black sites. Black uh, sites—you'll often hear uh, with regard to uh, sort of secret military prison prisons, yeah. Uh, kind of Bush-era global war on terror, like prisons. Uh, mm-hmm. But he uses it to describe, um, you know, places like Area 51 out in the Nevada desert and, and far less famous and yeah. The, uh, 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 so, I mean, he's an artist who, he's an artist, he has an MFA, he also has a PhD in geography, he sort of combines the disciplines yeah. in this artistic practice, where, uh, not exclusively, but largely his subject is intelligence and defense uh, secrecy, <laughs> uh, secret activity. Um and so he has one uh, series of photographs uh, where he will go out to these remote places around the world, largely in the American Southwest, uh, and stand on public land with a camera and a telescope uh, and take these uh, portraits of these places. So, for instance, uh, Area 51 is a, is a fine example. That's yeah. a place in Nevada, Uh and it's where uh, they audition uh, classified aircraft and where they test out classified aircraft. And so he'll climb a mountain 26 miles away from Air, Area 51 on public land where he's sort of in a legal gray zone because photography is not permitted of these places. But of course, you're allowed to stand on public land and take. So he's sort of doing this interesting political p- performance in the act of taking the photograph stands there with a telescope on the top of this mountain, shoots down, and what he produces are these uh, very beautiful kind of you know probably spooky because the subject matter as much as anything else but these beautiful blurry kind of obscured portraits of these places uh and so he's different from a documentarian uh and, and and that basic methodology applies to a lot of the art that he does that's that's just one of the things that he does um but he's sort of in in a way one of the the things that he said that he's interested is tr- interested in is trying to see secrecy so a photo like that, it doesn't reveal what goes on at Area 51. It reveals our sort of the difficulty involved in knowing what goes on at Area 51. right? Uh, because there's over 26 miles, there's dust in the air, there's heat coming off the desert floor. And that all registers as a kind of visual distortion, which actually makes the pictures pretty saleable, I think, because it lends them a kind of painterly, yeah. kind of like, you know, impressionistic quality uh, that, that makes them quite you know, pretty to look at and very visually striking. Uh, but there
1: is this whole other,
0: you know, political aspect of them. Well,
1: what he's doing is not, uh, does not fall under the tradition of photojournalism. He's not trying to expose anything. Um, but nor, um, based on the piece, would I say that his intention is purely artistic. It's, uh, he's an elusive person chasing something elusive. I was about as close as I could get. Um, w- this the, the piece struck me as a, a very very difficult uh an, another di- very difficult piece to take on um i almost got the impression while i was reading it that he's not entirely sure what his art is about um or it's an evolving uh evolving definition why why did you take on this piece and 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 where were you expecting it to go when when you started
0: i i don't know if you're weird or I'm weird but I love that now there's two there's two subjects who have yeah. struck me as the most obvious candidates for profiles that, that, yeah and it's interesting that you uh that you see them uh uh n- not the same way um in this case it was sort of i you know i mean i i i think what's emerging over the over the the past few stories I've done and certainly like writing profiles back to blenders i i do profiles of uh artists uh or you know cultural producers in the case of um of Tarn and Dwarf Fortress, but, uh, you know, uh, I don't think it would be a stretch to say that what he's doing with Dwarf Fortress is artistic too. Uh, in the case of Paglin, I thought that, um, you know, that started with, uh, me seeing his photographs, thinking that they were very striking and then sort of learning more about him. Uh, and for the uh, purposes of writing a magazine profile of an artist, um, I, Feel like it's a lot easier to write an interesting story about a guy who's traveling who's climbing mountaintops whose work involves real-world issues of secrecy and you know uh, uh, Abuses of you know government power and things like that um, Then it would it's easier to do that in a compelling sort of narrative uh, uh, Form than it would be to just visit a guy at, a, at his studio who makes sculpture and um, obviously great profiles have been written of sculptors but i i, I for me it struck me that it, it would be very easy to write something kind of fun uh, if i could tag along for one of these adventures because there is that sense of adventure yeah. um and uh, so yeah for me I, I i i met trevor uh he is uh, has in common with tarn adams that he is incredibly smart very good at talking about what he does and and, and i think if it, I think in part why I think that those two pieces uh, work to my satisfaction uh, to a large degree is that there's a lot of even hopefully without getting deadening there's a fair amount of process in there and and these sort of people who make things talking about what they make and how they make it and in both those cases I was very lucky uh, that both those guys are very good talkers Um, and and they don't they have a more than just intuitive sense of how they relate to their work they can really tell you uh, you know, line by line why they're doing what they're doing. And what I was doing with Paglin, we, we were out there on this mountaintop shooting a place called the Tonopah Test Range, uh, which he shot before. Um, and he's setting up his telescope and he is, uh, you know, attaching his camera to it and this magnifying lens. And step by step, I'm being a very tedious presence there by saying, tell me what you're doing now. What is that? What is it going to do? He looks through his viewfinder. What are you seeing? What don't you like? How are you going to respond to it? And so I was really getting him to narrate step by step all these sort of considerations and choices that he's making while he's standing there taking a photo. That's not something that you could do with just anyone. A lot of musicians that I've interviewed don't relate to uh, songwriting, let's say, in the same way, or you're not there for songwriting. It, that That's a process that, you know, for whatever reason, like I haven't been able to write that kind of... You know that kind of scene in a story, but but with the in the case of Paglin um, and with Tarn, I think a lot of what makes those pieces kind of good is you've got these guys making things, and I am lucky enough to be able to sort of let them just tell me how they do it and what's going through their head as they're doing it and report some of that, and that really just lends something nice to those stories.
1: Do you see um Do you see these kind of stories as almost a response to the limitations of Celebrity profiling writing if, if that's something that you started off doing um, in terms of access. I mean How long were you with Paglin when you were doing the story? Uh
0: there, I, I met him in December of last year uh, yeah. at his apartment when I was putting together the pitch And yeah. I sat with him for a few hours sort of did a kind of pre-interview just to put together the pitch uh, And then off and on through June uh, We took a trip out to Long Island, which is the final scene in the story uh, in May or maybe that was April, uh, and in May, we went to Nevada. Um, so we weren't together you know, every yeah. day, but there's a lot of access. Yes, no, uh, I, I wouldn't say that it's a response, but uh, to doing you know, a, a profile of Beyonce where I uh, s- sit with her in a conference room for an hour and then get to like glimpse a video shoot, and I've got to write a story based on that, which is something that happened for Blender. That doesn't feel good, and, and, and there are writers who can do those jobs really well. Um, and, and I don't really think I'm one of them. And, uh, for me, yeah. Being with someone like Tarn, who's letting me into his house five days in a row, letting me stay there for 12 hours, watching him work on this game, being with Paglin, being out there, we were, we were in, in a car together driving, uh, from, we actually met in Berkeley where he went to school and where he still uh, has some roots. We drove all the way down to Nevada, spent a bunch of days in Nevada. Like that feels so great after yeah. uh, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the experiences that you have where you really need to, um, and, and look at those sorts of circumstances can result in some really atrocious writing and these tropes that I, 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 am in, in this interview that I did with Vanessa Goriatis, I think <laughs> we talked about this, but where your, your access to someone is so limited that the way that they hold a cup of tea, you're trying to wring great insights into their personality from yeah. something so meaningless. And, and when. I don't know if the re- if a casual reader sort of sees this, but as someone who's written those pieces, when I read a lead like that, I groan because I'm like, my God, I know exactly what you're talking about on, on a subtextual level. You got nothing from this person, and so you're giving us 300 words on how they hold a cup of tea. Now, there's like a Chris Heath kind of writer yeah. who uh, can, or you know, John Jeremiah Sullivan, those guys can. Uh, they can write a thousand words on that cup of tea. I will gladly read them. Those are great. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, for me, I'm not that writer. And so uh, there is this sort of hinge moment where I do this like mock profile of Kanye West for slate. It sure. was based entirely on his Twitter feed, um, which I'd, I'd never thought of it as, as a hinge. And I'm just narrativizing it that way. For, for people who haven't
1: seen this piece, this is a piece that was in slate. Um, that Jonah did. That's uh, basically a profile of Kanye West uh, constructed entirely of quotes and incidents that were publicly available on the internet, tweets, um, other it's
0: like 99% m- tweets, and then like a like maybe
1: some here. paparazzi kind of stories, but basically nothing that required any access. And it real reads like a real celebrity profile. It's not until you get to the end that you realize how this has been uh, put together. But I read that as a pretty implicit critique of, Celebrity profiling. Is that how you attended it?
0: Uh, I, I, I Sure, on an implicit level. For yeah. me, that piece arose. Uh, I, I am fascinated by Kanye West. I, I, I really like his music. I really like him as a figure. Um, and he had gone into this media blackout uh, by the, for a couple years or maybe a year or whatever it was, following the death of his mother, I think, is what kind of prompted him to finally say he wasn't going to do interviews anymore. Uh and um suddenly he emerges, he's got a new album to promote, and he's touring the offices of Facebook and Twitter, and he joins Twitter and he starts tweeting like nobody's business. I mean he's just sort of like narrow... like the kind of like uh The cliche version of my God, you don't need to tell us what you had for breakfast like Kanye is doing that, but in grand, beautiful, brilliant Kanye fashion. And so like a lot of people, I'm loving this Twitter feed. uh, But unlike a lot of people, I'm also really wishing that I could profile Kanye West and have some access with him. And it was as simple as one day saying, wait a second, I can do a profile of him Based on all this stuff, and I can finally get to scratch this itch. I want to write an embedded profile of Kanye West. Wait a second, the material's right there. Now, of course, that's being slightly disingenuous because there is, as you said, sort of kind of points you know hover, hovering on a kind of meta level about celebrity, you know, profiling and access and things like that. Uh, and I was aware of those. But for the kind of like the 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 basic, you know, the basic core of that was just wanting like re, like he is a great subject. Yeah. And finally, I realized that I actually could write that piece. Uh, and so I sort of did it straight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, like there, there's some winks early on because I think you sort of need to kind of acknowledge that you're. You know, doing a kind of like Frank Sinatra had a cold homage and and I didn't write the headline. The headline of that piece ran as Connie West has a goblet, which is a reference to this like chalice that he wanted to buy that he mentioned. Anyway, but there's sort of like there's that winking. But for the most part, I kind of just wrote. Wait, that you're straight. telling
1: me that slate writers don't write their own headlines.
0: Um, I've written some of my own <laughs> headlines at Slate, but uh, but that one was not mine. Yeah, my, my my suggested headline for that was less good, which was just Connie West jogs in long Vingt. Uh, because uh, there one of the most retweeted tweets was just, I jog in long vent, uh that he put out.
1: Do people who are really, really famous realize the limitations of writing about people who are really famous? Like, Is that something that's conscious in the room that like we're both kind of like, you're kind of fucking me over here with giving me a limited amount of time or restrictions?
0: Uh, I think that there's um, those profiles can be different kinds of transactions, and sometimes someone is promoting something uh, they've got a new movie coming out. They've got a new album coming out, and there it feels very transactional, which is right. to say, they don't want you to get any closer to them than, yeah, uh, than an hour's worth. That said, sometimes there's people who sort of believe in the thing that they're selling. So, like, I profiled Bruno Mars for Rolling Stone. There's a guy who uh, believes rightly that he is an excellent pop craftsman, uh, and it means something to him to have Rolling Stone spending. Uh, three days with him on the road And writing a piece about him uh, He wants to be taken seriously He feels he deserves to be taken seriously And there he's going to give You know a reporter uh, More than the kind of perfunctory Like junket plus one Level access um, And there are other times I think That if you approach someone uh, And you really Take them seriously and take what they do Seriously Uh a profile subject and you come to the table sort of demonstrating that you've thought a lot and sensitively and kind of just sort of charitably or generously I don't know what you've thought a lot about what they do. Uh, that will appeal to, uh, I, I, I don't want to say vanity because I don't think it's necessarily as base as that, but that'll just appeal to their sense that what they do is of, is of worth. And oftentimes uh, I think that what contributes to the, minimal access hour-long profile thing is just a sense that most I mean, it's true that most sort of people in the press uh, or in celebrity press uh aren't necessarily uh interested in writing that story and so it's not worth it on the subjects you know uh, part to give them that much time because that's not what the piece is ever going to
1: be what are you um totally turning a 90 degree corner here but what what are you what are you reading what um what what excites you on the other end of the uh, journalism e- equation? We we had been talking earlier when you came in here and you said you didn't have a ton of uh, friends who were writers. How do how do you sort of interface with this as a profession? Um,
0: yeah. Well, uh, so I worked in an office at Blender till 2009. Yeah. And at that point, I think it's pretty soon after I wasn't working at Blender anymore that I joined Twitter, and it was largely to sort of simulate, um that experience of being in a room full of other you know writers and people sort of talking about stories and ideas and trading yeah. links and all that um so that's one of the ways that i interface yeah literally over the twitter interface um the 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 right around which is what i alluded to yeah. was uh this thing that i started which is very similar to this although i started it off as being audio
1: and he did and, do it first <laughs>
0: <laughs> and i quickly uh thank you and i quickly uh shifted over to uh just doing all text but that was again trying to come to understand what i do yeah. better by talking to other people who do um
1: how that experience been talking to other writers about what they do it,
0: it's great I, I don't even think there's anything necessarily that novel about it because yeah. i think if i if i had like more friends who i went out and got beers with uh, and talked about like stories more um that's what i'm hoping to get out of those conversations but in a way um i unlike so so if i talk about sort of like tarn adams or or trevor paglin being very good uh at being sort of analytic about what they do in their creative process i don't feel the same way about i i feel like i'm more intuitive in a way there are certain rules that i sort of like to stumble on but i sort of stumble on them and i confirm them in conversations so like When Vanessa Grigoriadis in my interview with her said it's always great to be with a profile subject when they're driving That's a great thing. Yeah, I said you're totally right and so like I sort of I I, in a way It's it's helpful for for me And I think for anyone who does this to sort of get a sense that even if obviously there's an exception to every rule if you can sort of codify certain kind of principles and uh like so, for instance, um, in the piece that I'm that I'm uh, that I filed now the Times Magazine, uh, in the draft that I filed, there's just a little scene where I've got my subject interacting with someone else, and that's another thing that I just know I love. When you have your subject talking to someone who isn't you in a story, I know that's a good thing because it just, as a reader, there is just something texturally that happens there, where even if the exchange is very tiny, uh, just something changes in the course of your, of your experience as a reader where the subject isn't talking to the writer, they're talking to someone else and the air in the room changes and that's just nice. Uh, and so I think sort of these, these kinds of conversations are useful to me in terms of trying to, yeah, just whatever, just get a better, a better understanding. And, and, and in some degree a more systematic or more codified understanding.
1: I, um, when I, I thought to get you on the show after while well, I was reading that uh, New Yorker piece, and you were someone I was already sort of familiar with um, because you are fairly active on Twitter, and, I, and I've seen you around uh, tweeting it up. Um, but it's interesting, you, you cited that um, one way that you sort of pick up on stuff is just clicking around on Twitter, and I, I know that that, uh, that New Yorker piece is, is not online. Um, w- What's that like for you not having a piece online? And and does that change your relationship to the piece that it's uh, not publicly available?
0: Uh, In the case of that piece, I sort of feel like uh, if you don't have a New Yorker subscription. Yes. Dot, dot, dot. I don't know. Like that (laughs) one. Everyone who I know, everyone who follows me on Twitter who would be interested in that story, I think has a subscription and can get past that paywall. Yeah. Yeah. uh, yeah, that that's a that's a question ultimately that I leave to com- I mean, Rolling Stone. Doesn't put a lot of stuff online either. Yeah. I defer to their ju- their business sense in uh-huh. terms of how I I just that's not my money. Yeah,
1: and and I don't know. So um, I just I guess I would uh, I noticed that it um, it creates a slightly different life for a piece when it's not online, where it doesn't um, necessarily permeate. The, consciousness as much it doesn't get passed around as much and I'm always interested in um for a piece like that that takes months to produce it's not like you're churning one out every week it's not like hey we'll get them next time um there is a very conscious sort of visibility um threshold for for pieces like that and um I'm always intrigued as to whether writers are conscious of that or you're just like I'm done with it walk away oh
0: no no of course no i mean god it feels so you what you know you put this thing out into you know into a void and it's nice yeah. if some voices kind of holler back from the void right yeah um th- I, this is a conversation that i've had with, with friends about sort of uh I, I i think at this point yeah i don't know it, it, it's it's sort of mysterious to us uh if something isn't like what feels like a twitter triumph like my god 26 people retweeted this right. link that i shared right. that feels like a lot of people but it's 26 people when you compare that to the readership of rolling stone or the the readership of the new yorker mm-hmm. so somewhere in my head i'm thinking like this is fine people are reading this thing i'm one thing that i would say though uh uh, to, to the extent that there is a kind of utility to these interviews for kind of uh, younger writers or whatever it is. Some kind of like here's a, here's writer. your lesson. <laughs> no, when you said, you know, you you click around on Twitter a lot. Yeah. Uh, what popped into my head was that Twitter is a horrible place to find story ideas, which is to say, like, it's it's this echo chamber. Yeah, you're you, you, at least if you sort of follow a community of other writers uh, who are nominally nominally your competition. Yeah. Um, that cool little link that you know someone shared and yeah. got passed around. Now, look, maybe no one will actually like dig into it, but 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 um, it is really uh useful to sort of get out of the same kind of like blog circle, you know, like checking the same blogs for news and the same aggregators and the same sort of like people on Twitter. Uh, and so what I would say there is it really helps to have a friend or friends who don't do journalism at all, who have totally different interests than you. Yeah. Um, because the, the, the guy who put me onto Dwarf fortress, uh, is, is an art history, uh, uh, phd candidate uh who, who i've known is a really good friend of mine um but he is a guy who's just sort of up on all kinds of stuff that no one who i follow on twitter is into and he told me about the dwarf fortress guy
1: do you think that the um like if we were looking at this as a sublime demand question the supply of stories is going down as stuff like twitter gets to, to more things first and I guess you could say sort of the boing boingization of the world that um, you're going to see, but it's going to be harder to find some of these stranger stories?
0: You know, I don't think so because uh, because at a certain point that will still become noise, and that's still only a 300-word post on boing-boing, and it can still be reported into. I'm friends Dwarf Fortress was written about on boing-boing right. a lot. Um and so I, I was I was talking with, uh, you know, after David Grant wrote uh, A Murder Foretold, which was his story about the uh, the seeming murder of this guy down in Guatemala. Um, this is a piece that had uh, this was in The New York Times. It was in the A section, you yeah. know, uh, and, and, and it was certainly headline news down in Guatemala. Uh, but, you know, uh, Gran relied on the fact that a no one had you know, gone and done the report and, you know, kind of like the reporting necessary for a long magazine piece into it. And also that there's just like a certain level of noise. Like there's just a lot of crazy stories. And so just the fact that if anything, the kind of proliferation of, you know, blogs and places to sort of encounter these weird little, you know story tidbits uh, if anything that only just sort of increases the the noise volume and it's not everyone it's everyone who can click on that and kind of chuckle at it it's not everyone who starts saying oh well I can kind of map out the architecture of a piece here and this is who I need to talk to and then go and actually do it
1: Thank you, Lauren Kirchner for editing this episode my co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff uh, this is a production of Long Form and The Atavist we will see you next week times are hard